Welcome to this presentation on re residential earthquake preparedness. My name is Howard Z. I'm a structural engineer. Um, I've worked with Department of Building Inspection for about a year and a half. Prior to that, I spent roughly 20 years in the private sector uh, uh, with uh, design, uh, retrofits, residential, commercial, and new construction. So we're here today to share with you some simple tips on um, to help your to help you and your families prepare for the next major next major earthquake. Our most recent major earthquake was the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. Uh, it hit the Marina District especially hard. This photo was taken in the Marina, and if you look very closely at the garage door. Well, it's not showing up too well, but that's not really square anymore. So this building is probably uh, leaning now permanently against this building. And if you look at this building, that doesn't really look like it's too straight up and down anymore either. So this building is probably leaning now too. And way off over there, something is not there anymore. Another reminder from the 1989 uh, earthquake, this used to be a four-story apartment house. My guess is that this is the type of apartment house which had lots of garage door openings and other types of openings at the street level, a condition that we call a soft story. And it's very likely that the soft story condition led to, contributed to this building collapsing. Notice this gentleman here who's standing on the balcony. I guess, I, I wonder if he's just getting out or if he's trying to do some rescue. <coughs> so the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake was a magnitude 6.7 earthquake. The 1906 earthquake was magnitude 7.8. Between 7.8 and 6.7, that's roughly 10 times bigger. The latest projected projections indicate that a, there is a greater than 30%, no, greater than 60% probability of a major earthquake, you know, we call it the big one, hitting the Bay Area within the next 30 years. And this big one is expected to be as, as big as 7.9. So that's 10 times more shaking, possibly 10 times more damage than what we experience in, in the marina in at the Loma Prieta. So it's definitely worth doing what we can to prepare. So to begin, we're, we'll first talk about some steps you can take to prepare yourself and your family. And for additional information and details, there is a website, if you, I hope you can see it, 72hours.org. It's got details of everything we're going to talk about today. The first thing to do is to develop a family emergency plan. Locate a place in your home, a room that you can identify as a safe shelter area. And it would be a room with uh, no heavy hanging objects that will fall. Ideally, a room that does not have a lots of windows because if you have lots of windows, the glass could break. And it might be good to have this room on the ground floor with ready access to the outside. Uh, identify some places in your house, in your home, where you can store your emergency supplies. 
And because you may not be able to get back into your home or even get back into your neighborhood, it's a good idea to arrange a place to meet uh, someplace uh, away from your actual home after an earthquake. And similarly, um, it's a good idea to identify a person, a distant relative, maybe an aunt or uncle, someone who is located uh, far enough away from San Francisco that they will, would not be affected by the earthquake. They can become the, uh, the point of contact. They can be the storehouse of information. Everybody can call into that person to check in with them and in case you lose touch with each other. All this and more you can find on 72hours.org. In terms of your emergency supplies, uh, you want to obviously uh, keep a stash of emergency supplies at home. Uh, at work, you might want to keep your, some emergency supplies because we spend a lot of time at work. Uh, remember also that at work it's a good idea to keep a pair of sturdy walking shoes and socks because you might need to walk home. Some people if they spend a lot of time in their cars or maybe they have long commutes, they might put some emergency supplies in their cars. It's, it's important, especially at home, that your emergency supplies be transportable so that you can easily uh, relocate. Transportable meaning like uh, sturdy boxes or sturdy plastic bins. Put together a grab-and-go kit. Since you'll probably be asleep, a grab-and-go kit it would be a duffel bag or a backpack that you ideally keep under your bed or in the bedroom so that when you're asleep and the earthquake hits, you'll be able to grab it and just go. You don't have to try to figure out what you need to take. Some things to include in your grab-and-go kit would be uh, shoes. And now shoes and socks, it would be a good idea to put those inside the, the kit or in a plastic bag so that uh, if they don't get um, uh, so like broken glass doesn't fall on them, fall on your shoes, and or you don't get dust and debris because it'd be really hard to put those shoes on if it was lots, if they're covered in glass. Uh, crowbar, well, you know, maybe your bedroom door might be kind of jammed, so it might be a good idea. Oh, another place that if you if you put your grab and go kit in a closet, then I would recommend that you sleep with the closet door slightly open so you'll be able to get to it. A flashlight with batteries, leather gloves are, are good, but maybe most important would be your ID, your cell phone, uh, any crucial important papers that you must take with you, and, and lots of cash. Well, not lots of cash, but cash. And some other items you can see here, um, ATM card, credit cards, debit cards, are there some medications or spare pair of glasses, whistle, scissors, a watch. Water. Water, humans need water more than they need food. <coughs> so it's really important that we uh, store water that we can use in an emergency. The recommendation is a minimum of one gallon per person per day for three days is what uh, the federal guidelines are what FEMA recommends, and I think 72 hours at work might recommend it too. But my recommendation is would be five days, just to be safe. And for this water, un, in my opinion, unopened store-bought water would be the best. They come in plastic jugs. They have expiration dates on them. 
um, so you know when to replace them. If you're going to store tap water, then you should be prepared to purify this water before you actually use it and make sure you keep track of how old it is. Uh, store it in a cool, dark place, someplace where animals can't get to. So actually in, in my uh, basement, I, there's only three gallons here, but actually this, I keep my water in two different places. And so here's an example of store-bought water. I can see their expiration <coughs> dates. I keep it in a plastic crate so it's easily transportable. And over here, there's a little piece of wood. Someone once told me that if you're going to store plastic jugs of water, um, don't store it directly on top of concrete. I don't remember the exact reasons, so, but here's a piece of wood that I set it on top of. Water purification kit. So some additional uh, items to, to, to uh, keep in your supply. And these are all listed in the handouts. Water purification kit, if, if you are uh, storing tap water, a first aid kit and then some instructions on how to use it. Wet wipes are, come in really handy. Food requiring little heat or water. All right? And then a can opener. If you're storing canned food, make sure you got a can opener. And eating utensils, spoon, knife, fork, you know, those would be good to have. You know, you've got to have some TP and other personal hygiene items. A butane, barbecue, fireplace, igniter, or matches. I mean, having a barbecue is a good idea so that you could cook your meals outdoors. Never, never use a barbecue indoors. So if you, if you have a barbecue, then you have barbecue briquettes with it. Um, a fireplace lighter, I guess that those are the big butane, long uh, lighter type things. Uh, and you've got to have matches. Matches. Uh, if you watch a TV show, Survivor, it's, you know, fire is one of the key elements of survival. So you've got to have some matches. Some large garbage bags, um, because you can do wondrous things with garbage bags. Uh, duct tape, a utility knife, and even more stuff. Battery-operated radio, or maybe those hand-cranked radios, flashlights, hand-cranked flashlights. Yeah, it's, it's, this is, that's better. All right. um, blankets, warm clothes, uh, diapers, yeah, etc. Et you can see all these, and th these are all on uh, 72hours.org. Uh, Let's talk about utilities. So the three main utilities we have in our homes, uh, natural gas, water, and electricity. It's a good idea to train your family to turn <coughs> off, how to turn off the utilities, but especially with gas, don't do it only if it's, ne do it only if it's necessary, or if you're not, not sure. For natural gas, teach your children to identify the smell of gas. You know, it's the, the sulfide, I think it's sulfide that they add to it that makes it smell like rotten eggs. So if you smell it, then turn it off. If you're not really sure, turn it off. If your meter wheels are spinning, it means you got a leak somewhere, turn it off. But if you don't think it's, if you don't feel a need for it, don't just do it automatically. Because if you turn it off, don't ever turn it back on yourself. You have to call, call PG&E to come, come back and turn it on. And you know they're going to be swamped, so it's going to take a while for them to get to you. So do not turn the gas on back, turn it back on by yourself. And how do you, uh, everybody should have a meter that kind of looks like this picture here. So to turn it off, it's a crescent wrench, and there's a valve here, and See, there's, there's the, the wheels are there, there's, a, there's the little dials, and this is on when, when the valve is uh, 
in the direction of the pipe, and this is all. So you take your wrench and you turn it, turn it from this to that, and that turns it off. It's unlikely that you'll need to turn the water off, but if maybe your pipe breaks and you've got water flooding, then, then you should turn your water off. Most people, most homes, single-family homes, have uh, a main valve that looks like this in the basement, in the garage. That's it right there. So to turn it off, you turn it, turn it clockwise until, it's, until you can't turn it anymore, and that turns it off. If you can't find a valve like that, then your other option is out on the sidewalk, turn it off at the sidewalk. So here's an exercise for everyone, is go home tonight and try to find this in front of your house, your home, and take a big screwdriver, stick it in here, and pry open this lid, and look down there and see what it looks like. Uh, better to be familiar with what it's going to look like. And look at the type of valve that's down there and imagine how you would turn that valve off after you get this thing open. No. Well, well, you could do whatever you want, but I don't think you would have authority to go turn other people's gas off. It's, If I would say that if people ask you to help them, of course, you know, if, 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 it's, if it's an emergency situation, of course you'd help your neighbors. Or you, or you locate um, one of the first responders, a fireman, a policeman, and alert them to it. But if you did it yourself, then you might, uh, your neighbors might not be happy with you if you were wrong, because you would cause a lot of inconvenience to them. Now we're going to move towards how to prepare your home and for um, Basically, there's two choices. Uh, you could either hire an architect or an engineer to perform a structural evaluation, which would lead to a seismic retrofit or a seismic upgrade. And when they were done, uh, then uh, you would have a code-conforming seismic upgrade or a seismic retrofit. The other option is you skip the the you could do it yourself, and, and when you do it yourself, uh, there's no engineer, no architect, and it becomes a strengthening. You cannot call it a seismic upgrade or a seismic retrofit, but if you do it yourself, you're doing something, and doing something is better than doing nothing. So uh, if you decide to proceed uh, with an engineered seismic retrofit or a seismic upgrade, then you will need drawings and calculations prepared and signed by a licensed architect or an engineer. Civil engineers are licensed to provide structural design services. You do not need a structural engineer. A civil engineer should be good enough, all right? And uh, an engineer cannot call themselves a structural engineer unless they actually have a structural license. So you only need a civil engineer. Many of the practitioners out there in San Francisco, they do excellent work, and they're civil engineers. Okay. Um, the fee for a structural engineer is going to be substantially higher than it would be for a civil engineer. For a, for a typical single-family home in San Francisco, you can expect a design fee from a civil engineer uh, in, in the thousands of dollars. If, if you have a larger home, if it's more complicated, you're on a steep hillside, then it, it's almost, it becomes almost unlimited. It's going to be substantially higher. And if you hire an architect, uh, well, then you've got to pay the architect, and they have fees, and their fees are going to be higher. And depending on how much other work you do, then that will drive up the fees. But in the end, when you're done, 
you can properly say that your house has been seismically retrofitted and that it's been seismically upgraded to code. Yeah, that's correct. If you take out a building permit, that would always be in the records. And, of course, it would probably add value to your home if you've, if you've done a full seismic upgrade, of course, yeah. Because when it comes time to sell, you can, you can legitimately say that you have a code-conforming, seismically retrofitted house. But if you don't have that proper permit and you say it, then, then that's not right. So uh, if you, if you want to go ahead with the do-it-yourself voluntary seismic uh, strengthening, uh, if you come down to the building department at 1660 Mission and you tell them you're just going to put in some anchor bolts around the perimeter of the foundation, add some shear walls at the bottom level, no drawings are going to be uh, required for that. A building permit is required, but uh, an engineer's stamp is also uh, not required, nor an architect. It's, it's not a seismic upgrade or a retrofit. It's just a voluntary strengthening, a very simple permit. However, I must stress that you do need a building permit for that work. The description of work on the building permit should just state voluntary strengthening work to add anchor bolts and plywood at, at the lowest story. So in, in your typical San Francisco home, like in the Sunset or the uh, Richmond District, where you've got a lot of the open basement uh, garage areas, that's, that's the area that I'm talking about. Uh, it's usually, it, it's always at, 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 the, uh, at the lowest uh, level of the building. You would go to the residential permit counter on the first floor. Well, it's, it's actually the permit center on the, on the first floor now. And as I say, it's an over-the-counter permit approval. Uh, you just state on the application that you're installing anchor bolts at the perimeter of the foundation. Uh, you're also going to state that you're installing plywood sheathing at the, uh, at the bottom level of the building. Uh, well, and that permit will be, if you come in on a Monday morning, you're going to leave on a Monday morning with your, with your building permit and you can start work at any time. As long as you fill out the application completely. <laughs> so as I said, the uh, general guidelines and tips for the voluntary strengthening are adding anchor bolts, strengthening the crippled garage walls, and one size uh, does not fit all. That means all buildings are different. Obviously, I'm, I, I referred to the Sunset Richmond type houses. If you've got a, a Victorian, it could be a crawl space. The, that space may be harder to do the work. I'm not saying it's something that you shouldn't do, but it just might be a little different approach as to how you would get access to the area. I'd like to talk a little bit about installing the uh, anchor bolts. Uh, having been a carpenter, I've done quite a few of them in San Francisco, and I find that if you're anywhere handy with tools and construction equipment, this is something that you could accomplish. Uh, you may feel more comfortable hiring a contractor. Uh, my estimate for the rates for, for installing an anchor bolt, for example, would be anywhere from $30 to $75 per bolt, which isn't really a lot. I think you're talking somewhere in the region of 20 to 30 bolts in a normal size uh, single family residence in the city. Uh, so the, uh, it's better, the easiest place, you know, to do the work is in a typical open garage basement where the walls, where there's no sheetrock or wall covering on the walls. It's good to create a good working area uh, around the perimeter, approximately three feet. That will enable you to move around there with materials, with tools, etc. 
you want to mark the location of the holes on the mud sill. I'll just get Howard to point where the mud sill is. There's that's the, the plate, as we call it, or the mud sill. Uh, so you want to mark the locations around the perimeter on the mud sill. Uh, you would then note where the joints are on the mud sill because these, these things are typically 14 to 16 feet long. You uh, don't want to put the holes any closer than five and a half inches to the end of the, uh, to the end of the sill or more than 12 inches from the end either. So somewhere in between five and a half and 12 inches. Uh, if you're dealing with a finished space in a basement, for example, if you've got rooms down or something and you discover that your foundation hasn't been, been bolted to the foundation, it is a little bit more difficult to do the work because obviously you're going to have to disturb the wall finishes like removing the sheetrock. But I would not, you know, it, it discourage that. I think it's more important to have your building bolted than it is to have your, your finished walls because, you, you, because you, know, you can always patch the sheetrock again. But you would only have to take off enough, enough sheetrock, obviously, to uh, do the work, maybe a three-feet section or something. Uh, so, as I said there, on the mud sill, you go ahead and uh, drill the holes in the mud sill with a wood boring bit. Uh, you also, in some of the older houses, and even it's, there sometimes are, is a bracing on the walls. That's a, a, a diagonal bracing. You may need to remove some of that, but always take it out and whenever you put the yeah, bolt in when the work's finished, always put that brace back in because that actually adds a sheer value to your, uh, to your home. Uh, usually these bolts are a, I've got one here actually, they're a 5 8 inch uh, diameter. They usually come in a 12 inches long. You want to uh, drill a 3 quarter inch hole to accommodate the 5 8 inch uh, anchor bolt because that's, that gives you a little bit of work room. Um, you need then, when, whenever you've got the holes drilled in the wooden mud sill, you then will start to drill the holes into the concrete or your brick, whatever it is your foundation is. Uh, you need to do that with a rotary hammer drill. You can rent those out. They're like $40, $50 a day. Uh, you start drilling, go down about, you've got to be seven inches minimum uh, into the concrete. And uh, you want to make sure, just take your time, do it, you know, let the drill do the work. It's not, you're going to hit your knuckles a couple of times, but it's not impossible to do. Uh, if you hit, if you suddenly are drilling and you suddenly hit something really hard and the drill won't go anymore, that means you've probably hit some steel or rebar which is in your foundation, which is a good thing because that means you've got steel in your, in your foundation, that your foundation has actually got a, a, a reinforcing in it. So you would just change the location of the hole, maybe move it over a little bit. Uh, probably the most important thing is whenever you drill the holes into the concrete, it's very important to remove all of the concrete dust. And simply because whenever you get to the stage of putting in the epoxy, which holds the bolt in place, that epoxy will not settle if you've got dust in there. So you can vacuum out the dust or use a wire brush. All these things are sold in all the builders' uh, stores, the hardware stores sell all these things for that type of work. Uh, you want to set the bolts using the epoxy. That's the, the epoxy comes in a, in a gun here. Howard's got one here. Uh, you buy the epoxy, you buy the gun. It comes in tubes. It's really easy to put in. You want to fill the hole up about halfway and then set the bolt down into the hole. Uh, it usually takes about 48 hours for the bolts to set in the concrete. 
So you're not going to put on any nuts or any washers on, until after that time. Uh, so probably next, the following Saturday, whenever you're doing it, or the next day, a uh, couple of days later, you want to install a two-inch, uh, two-by-two plate washer. It's a square plate washer. That's what the building code now requires, and uh, they perform a lot better in the earthquakes. That's been proven. I think the Northridge quake in L.A. proved that, I believe. Uh, we saw some photographs after that, and any of the buildings that had the two-inch plate washers really performed a lot better. The buildings didn't move as much. Uh, you want to then put the plate washer on and tighten down the nut, and uh, that's pretty much your anchor bolt in at that stage, you know. There are some other type of anchor bolts. We've got them on displays at the back there. They're called a wedge anchor, which does not need epoxy. However, you've got to be spot on with the drilling on those. I mean, you, there's no room for error. If you have to use a certain type bit, that's it. And I mean, you get one shot at putting those things in. Uh, personally, I prefer, you know, uh, the uh, epoxy system. Joe was talking about a 5 8 inch diameter anchor bolt, which is absolutely correct. But you also are allowed, I mean, of course, if you wanted to, you can use a 3 quarter inch diameter. So it's either 5 8 or 3 quarter inch diameter. And the material should be either an ASTM A307 or an A36. An A307 is a natural bolt, and A36 will be like an all-thread rod. And you need at least 7 inches. You can't see the inch mark here, but it's 7 inches embedment into the foundation space your anchor bolts not more than four feet apart a minimum of two piece two anchor bolts in each sill piece all right and in, this reads one bolt located not more than 12 inches and not less than five and a half inches from each end of the sill piece i i started engineering before they had invented this type of uh, system and this is absolutely, I think, the best way to go. When you're going to install uh, epoxy or adhesive anchor bolts, you buy the, you buy the cartridges. They, they come together with the, the two parts. It's a two-part. It has to be mixed. You have to buy the gun. Maybe you, could, maybe you could rent the gun. But the beauty of this is you stick the, the, the twin cartridge in. You attach the nozzle. You have to use the nozzle that they sell. And the beauty is as you squeeze this, it forces the two parts separately into this nozzle, and inside the nozzle there are little veins, and it mixes so that by the time it comes out the end, it's properly mixed. In the olden days, I would go to a job site, and the contractors, they're trying to mix it together, and they spread some newspaper out. They got part A and part B, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't work. This is the best way to go. Now, with this, though, you don't want to cut corners by sometimes what people will do is as you can see here, there's a blob at the end, meaning that they were halfway through. And if this hardens, you can't use this nozzle anymore. So what I've seen people do is they cut off the end. I, I really don't recommend, I recommend you absolutely do not do that. Just, just buy another nozzle. Because if you cut off too much, then it won't mix properly. But this is the best way. Last year, uh, Simpson lent me a, demonstration, a demonstrator. So this year, this is the Hilti demonstrator. So equal time. Okay, now sometimes, like in an older house, uh, the mud sill, this, this is the mud sill right here. And this is the stud, all right, and here's the concrete. You see that the mud sill is actually wider than the stud. Good God, what do you do? So what you have to do is you need to nail down new sill pieces that are flush with the stud. If your stud is a two by four, then you use a four inch sill piece, a two by four sill and you, you stick it in here between the studs, right in there, and you nail it down. 
And to be conservative, I, I recommend, oh God, you can read this again, six ten penny common nails per sill piece to nail your new sill piece down to the mud sill. All right, so you need to do that everywhere. Okay, and uh, if there's an existing, like this, well, yeah, this is an old house which there's an existing bolt, so you have to drill a hole in your new sill piece so it can fit over the the two sills together. And after after you've nailed the new sill pieces at each one of these spaces to the mud sill, then it's time to install the anchor bolt. And when you do that, you drill through both sills and then down into the concrete. So you need to make sure you're using a slightly longer anchor bolt for that type of application. The other, the other thing, Howard, I was going to mention was uh, probably I got ahead of myself. Whenever, when I was talking about marking out the holes for the anchor bolts, of course, if you have this condition in your home where the where the mud sill is wider than the studs, you would install the blocking prior to the drilling because that's, that has to be done first. But not all homes are like that. We just wanted to mention it. It's also referenced in uh, page 12 of that Simpson handout. It's very clearly shown as to what exactly you need to do. We just don't have it on a slide here. But it's in the Simpson book that we give out. It's page 12 shows that very clearly. Okay, now changing gears. Now we're, that, that's it for anchor bolts. Now let's talk about plywood and cripple walls. In San Francisco, uh, cripple walls are uh, the little bits of load-bearing walls that go between your first floor and the top of the foundation. And cripple walls uh, cre create uh, the perimeter around your crawl space. Most San Francisco houses do not have crawl spaces, so they, most San Francisco houses do not have actual cripple walls. But what we do have here is we typically have one or two stories over garage. And so that the garage at street level, those walls become like the cripple walls. So what we like to see is we like to see people strengthen those garage walls the same way that you would strengthen the cripple walls. You've installed your anchor bolts and now you're ready to add plywood. So use uh, the grades of plywood are CDX or structural one is recommended. Minimum half inch thick plywood, all right? Um, when you're adding plywood, add them in, install the plywood in uh, segments of four feet long minimum, minimum four feet long segments. Don't, it's not really worthwhile um, for garage or basement walls to add plywood in shorter segments. Four feet long minimum segments, longer segments are better of course, but you don't wanna go overboard and um, for example, covered the entire, one entire wall with plywood and leave all the other ones bare. That, that's, you're actually making it worse. The best thing to do is to distribute the installation of plywood as evenly as possible all around your perimeter walls. And the Simpson book, I think, actually shows a picture of that somewhere yeah, in there, too. Page 13 and 14. You know, and, I know it's down. difficult for most San Francisco houses, especially because if you have 25 foot wide lot and there's a garage door and there's an entry door. There's really not much you can do with the front elevation, but maybe the first cross wall, you can add some plywood. But uh, down the long walls on, you know, on the longitudinal sides, you know, it's really not necessary to completely cover those walls, but you know, just add some segments. And again, try to distribute your plywood throughout the entire perimeter. There are so many nails out there on the market uh, I strongly recommend common nails only, uh, not box nails and definitely not sinkers. Sink, uh, and make sure that your nails are three inches long. 
you should use for nailing the plywood, 10 penny nails, 10 D means 10 penny. Those are the best, but if you wanted to use 8 D, 8 penny nails, a slightly smaller diameter, be easier to hammer that nail in, that would be okay too. Uh, make sure they're three inches long. Uh, if they're galvanized, that's best, but it's not essential. Make sure you nail along all the edges of every single sheet of plywood and install those nails at uh, between four inches and six inches on center. And as you, in order to do this nailing, you will most likely need to add some blocking um, at places where the edge of the plywood doesn't coincide with a stud or, or it's a horizontal joint and so you need to add a horizontal block in. Make sure that you install vent holes and the recommendation would be two inch diameter vent holes, uh, one near the bottom and one near the top of each stud space. Plywood, when you go out to buy plywood, you get four by eight sheets, right? Four feet by eight feet. When you're installing your plywood, you could most people will install it vertically. If for some reason you wanted to install it horizontally, that's okay too. But just make sure you do them all the same way, all right? And make sure that you start, you start at the sill and you go completely all the way up to the top of the wall. And if you're putting your plywood sheets together, make sure that there is no gap, that there's no horizontal gap between the sheets. So here's the sill again. Here's the anchor bolt that we put in. And so your plywood is going to be up against, flush with the stud and the sill. So you nail the plywood to the sill. You nail your plywood to every stud. All right, that's simple enough, right? At the top of the wall, you, know, you have something. This is the stud. The bottom of the stud is at the sill down here. And then up here near the top, there's typically a double top plate, two top plates. You should run your plywood all the way up and nail it to this upper top plate. That's ideal, all right? And with no gaps, no, no horizontal gaps. So run it all the way from the sill up, up to the top. And Page seven in the Simpson book really shows that very clearly. It gives you a, a pre-retrofit uh, condition and a post-retrofit condition where there's no plywood and then the plywood's on there and you can see where they're nailing it right up to the underside of the floor joists on the bottom level. Okay, now if you are lucky enough to have a house where uh, your your uh, garage levels, the floor level is is higher, is quite tall, then most likely you know one sheet of plywood is not going to reach up there, and you're going to need to you're going to end up having a horizontal joint between the plywood sheets, so you will need to put a piece of block in between the studs, between the studs, in order to nail the plywood sheets together to to, to the to the blocking. All right. Okay, now, now look at this. So this is the top of the wall, all right? And there's the top of the double top plate. And it's hard to see, I'm sorry, but this is the floor sheathing. It's diagonal sheathing of the, of the first floor above. Here's the floor joist. There's the floor joist. Goes in and sits on top of the top plate. And this is a, a piece of block. This is like the rim blocking, this, this is, but this is a vertical block. And hopefully when the house was built, the floor sheathing was nailed to the block, all right? So all that's left now is to make sure that you, to, to finish the load path, we're gonna look at where this piece of block meets the top plate. And what you wanna do is you wanna install, because we don't know what was done, so better to be safe. So you wanna install some metal clips. And this is not advertising, but 
this is almost like an industry standard, but Simpson, this is a Simpson, a, this one is a Simpson A35. It's, it's a pretty big one. But this one in a picture is an A34. It's a little bit smaller. A35 uses 10 penny nails, A34 I believe uses 8 penny nails. But you want to put either an A35 or an A34, nail it to, the, to that blocking and nail it to the top of that double top plate. All right? And you want to put one of these at, yeah, this is conservative, it might be a little overkill, but at 16 inches on center, or actually at 12 inches on center, or one clip at every block, all right? At least one clip for every block, but, or put them at 12 inches on center. So here's, here's the condition again where the, the, the mud sill is wider than the studs. Okay, so you've nailed down new sills, sill pieces to the top of the wide mud sill, mud sill, and you've installed an anchor bolt through both sills. Okay, now it is, so when you install your plywood, the plywood will be nailed to the stud right there, and then it will be nailed to the edge of the new sill. It will not be nailed to the edge of the mud sill because the mud sill is too wide. So the plywood will be nailed to the sill there and then to the studs. And I just wanted to clarify that. Sometimes when you're doing this work, you're going to run into some electrical and plumbing lines. You know, you want to unclip those uh, conduits or pipes. Just be very careful, though. I mean, you may need to hire an electrician or a plumber if it's very, very difficult. But most times you can take the clips off, uh, pull out the pipes a little bit, you know, and then get your plywood up underneath that. So I wouldn't be put off because you've got electrical and plumbing, but don't be surprised if you look at your basement and think, oh, this is going to be easy, and then suddenly realize you've got pipes and conduit in the way. It is something that you are going to uh, encounter, but it isn't something that, I would, that would put me off. You know, it's, it's something pretty simple, as long as you reclip them all back again after to the plywood after you've uh, finished the work. Okay, we're on a home stretch now. So the last things that you want to think about will be some non-structural non items such as chimneys. You, you might, if you have a brick chimney, you might want to anchor it or strap it and reinforce your roof. So if it falls, it won't cave in your roof. Uh, water heaters. Uh, some people in fancy houses have big heavy chandeliers and you might think about staying away from that because it might fall on you. If you have heavy, tall pieces of furniture that could tip over, or certain types of appliances. So put straps on your water heaters. As you can see from the picture, there are two straps. Put uh, at the upper third and at the bottom third points, put the straps in. Uh, anchor the straps to the studs. Don't just uh, screw the straps into dripboard. Make sure you're going into a stud, all right? And the one thing that's wrong, who can see what's wrong with this picture? The one thing that this picture is missing is missing the base. You need to elevate your water heater, put it on a metal stand. This picture is missing the metal stand. You need to raise this up 18 inches off the ground. And you can go to a hardware store and they'll sell you like gauge uh, sheet metal stands for it to sit on. So look at your handouts for places to go for additional information. Uh, there's free documents you can get from FEMA. The phone number is in your handout in 72hours.org. Uh, we hope that this has been helpful to you. It really is our goal to try to to, to assist you, and we would appreciate it if you would fill out the evaluation form. And now, please use the microphone for questions. Just, um, you know, you're talking about the cripple wall below the first floor. It, in my house, my first floor is kitchen, living room area. 
below grade, about two steps down. So, you know, I want to fix up the earthquake problem, um, but I got to put electrical lines, plumbing lines, all in the wall, you know, drill the holes for the seal. Mm -hmm. Does that mean the inspection guys, the electrician and plumber is going to come out first and then the earthquake guy so that they can look behind the sheeting? Well, if you're going to, it sounds like yours would be a little bit more complicated than some of the ones we're talking about with the open basements and stuff like that. Certainly, if you're going to open the walls and then you're going to relocate maybe electrical or plumbing inside the walls, yes, you would need an electrical and plumbing permit as well as the building permit. And yes, you're right, the plumbing and electrical inspectors will need to inspect that prior to the building inspector. And so before you would cover up, you would have electrical and plumbing rough inspections, and then you would have a rough inspection from the building inspector prior to covering up the walls. Uh, it's sort of implied in the handouts here that you could put up the, the plywood, drill some holes, yes, and then the inspector could come do... That's, that's okay as well. Yeah, that's, that's fine. That's yeah, okay. yeah, I've done that before myself. That's fine. I mean, the, the holes are not for that. They're vent holes for air so that you don't get air trapped in the and cause mold and mildew and uh, dry rot and stuff like, you know, so the holes aren't for that, but that would be something that we have done before, a small two-inch hole to let the building inspector see that the bolts are installed. Although a lot of times, to be honest with you, the building inspector will come out and look at the, at the bolts once they're installed before the plywood is put on yeah, the walls. Sure. You know, it's because once you have your building permit, your inspections building-wise are, you can have two or three inspections, it's not a problem, you know. Oh, really? And they don't charge yeah. extra for that? No, they don't. <laughs> uh, as well as that, it, it's all, it's, you mentioned earlier on about if you did a full seismic upgrade to your property and that was on the records. The same thing applies if you put in a, just anchor bolts and shear wall. It's just a seismic strengthening. The records will show for your building with the department that you have done that work. So again, if you went to sell the property or you're even, I think the insurance companies now might be interested to hear that. Maybe, maybe it'll bring your policy down a little bit, you know. So I, I have heard that in the past. I'm not so sure. I haven't looked into that. But I have heard that if you've got anchor bolts and shear walls, that you may have a lower, uh, you know, fee. Okay. I'd just like to comment about the water issue, storing water. You said that if it's from the tap, you should purify it. But about 25% of uh, store-bought water it's from a tap, so just because you have it from a store doesn't necessarily mean that, that you don't need to purify it. So it could be risky to assume that because you bought it from the store, it's fine. Not well, well I, I think that if you buy the water from a store, and I'm talking about a commercial, right, go to a supermarket about. and yeah. it's in a sealed container, that has never been opened and it's got an expiration date. I think I know, with that, as long as you stay within the expiration date, you, sh you should have no worries. If, if no. that water is contaminated, then that's a federal issue. You're not informed then. I'm sorry? 20, 25% of the water that you buy in the store yeah. is tap water. Okay, but it has an expiration date on it. It doesn't matter. Then the safest thing to do is to purify everything. But definitely, if you're gonna store your own tap water in which means you're, you're going to put it in a jar or a bucket. I don't know how you would store it in a big, big vessels of some kind. From, from a uh, camping store, you okay. get five-gallon containers from a camp supply store. Okay, but then you need to really make sure. Uh, how do you determine the expiration date then for that? See, I don't know how you to do that. Mark, you could mark when, you, how do you, know when how long you drew it. How, how long do you know 
how long you can store it for before you need to start purifying it. So I don't know the answer I to that. I believe you should uh, rotate it about every six months. I'm not an expert in that, so I go by my recommendation would be just store-bought water. And if I you're, kind if of you're follow these things. I, I'm certified in okay. permaculture. Okay. Well, support. you must be more of an expert than I am. Very good. Well, That's just great. to let people yeah. know. Thanks for the so information. If you buy from the store, it doesn't mean it doesn't need to be purified. Yeah, That's all okay. I wanted to say. Chris, all right. thank you very much. Really? No more questions? Go ahead, sir. Thank you. I have uh, several questions, and one of these questions is that I noticed on your presentation you have five-eighths of an inch um, anchor boats, and you have three-quarter of an inch anchor boats. Um, does this apply throughout the whole city? Because I, rem I thought I remember that the marina district requires three-quarter of an inch anchor boats only. You can't use five-eighths. I'm not aware of... Are you talking about immediately after 1989 for the right. work that was done? Yes. I, I'm not familiar with what types of rules may have been imposed uh, immediately following the, the Loma Prieta earthquake. It could have been that they set up some special provisions just like on an emergency basis. But in general, if you're doing a voluntary strengthening, if, if your house is not damaged, there's nothing wrong with your house, and you wanted to do some voluntary strengthening, then 5 eighths inch or three quarters should be fine. Yeah, because anything you do is going to be better than the existing condition. It could be that for the marina, maybe 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 you're referring to the required fixes for damaged houses, which we're not covering. We're not talking about that. We're talking about today. We're talking about somebody who wants to just do some voluntary strengthening to their house, which is in perfectly good shape right now. The California Building Code states that you know at five eighth inch minimum diameter so you don't go any smaller than five-eighth but what we're saying is if you want to go to a three-quarter inch diameter bolt that's fine you know but the california building code says you must have five-eighth inch minimum and a seven inch embedment into the foundation so seven inches into the concrete or brick whatever your foundation is made from yeah I mean, that was the only reason i asked the question yeah. I, yeah. I thought i remember back in those days they say the marine district three-quarter inch and 12 inches long, so, you know, that's, yeah, that's well, what you say, that's... Uh, actually, in shear wall systems, sometimes an engineer will call out for a, a thicker bolt, you're right, in a shear wall location, it could be, and they might be actually as close as 12 inches together, whereas in what we're talking about on the simple work, the simple uh, strengthening, they're, they're four feet apart, but in a shear wall uh, engineered, which is what we talked about earlier, that engineer could call out for those bolts to be spaced 12 inches or 9 inches, whatever whatever he works out, you know, and it could be 3 quarter inch. But so to bring closure to your question, if you uh, visited us tomorrow with a permit for voluntary strengthening and you showed 5 eighths or 3 quarters, it wouldn't matter if you were in a marina or if you were in any other neighborhood in the city. And uh, my, my second question is that you also mentioned that um, you could possibly use if you run the ply, you, you want the plywood <coughs> to be no more, or actually no less than four feet apart. But you also no, 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 four, four feet long. Four feet long. Four feet long. Minimum you, four foot long segments. You also mentioned that it's all right for you to put the plywood horizontally yeah. from the mud sill all the way up and stack it straight up? Right, as long as you, as long as you block the edges. Oh, but you have, you have, but you have to apply blocking. Yes. You have to block every edge, yeah. yeah. That's what I want to say. I thought at one time that... Yeah. You, it's recommended that you run the plywood the entire eight-foot length from mud seal to top plate so you 
then you have a, you know, a proper shield wall. But you, know, you said you could do it the other way as long as you have black. Yeah, you between. could do it the other way. Okay. In most people's homes, an eight-foot eight sheet of plywood is going to be just the right length to go from the sill to the top plate. Right. Yeah, maybe that's why they sell plywood in four by eight sheets. I don't know. Well, be, but, but I know that they sell in ten foot as well as twelve foot. Anyway. Yeah, tw that's, yeah, that's why. I asked yeah, it's a little more expensive. But there, um, you could turn the plywood horizontal if you wanted to, but you need to block all the edges. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, is it recommended you also put the hold downs too in uh, some specific areas before the uh, shear wall? Well, hold downs are recommended, but we don't. Um, that's not part of our scope. We, oh, okay. we figure that for most homeowners doing voluntary strengthening, uh, tie downs is more than they can understand. So they wouldn't, and we figure as long as you put the anchor bolts in and you add plywood, you've done so much already to strengthen your, your house. And then my last question is the, uh, the blocking that's directly um, onto the mud seal you know, for the oversizes. Yes. Uh, does that add any structural value to the uh, to the to the wall studs, you know, from from an earthquake, with or without the anchoring. No. No, it doesn't. I won't recognize any. Okay. No. No, that's just a. It's really just to get the connection between the, the mud sill and the and the plywood uh, and yeah. the plywood because you can't get it because you've got a wider mud sill because you can't your plywood won't go out to the edge and then catch the stud. It's just it's easier to do it like we said. You need to nail your blocking through the bottom of the mud sill within the stud width with four 10D uh, nails minimum on, you, on the block. Because the only reason I asked the question about the blocking on the mud sill is that, you know, when an earthquake hits, depending which direction it rolls, you know, the entire structure either rolls in one direction or the other. And, you know, the, the mud, the, uh, the studs are only held in with what, either 10D or, or what, four 10D nails on either side of it that would that, you know, cause a real, uh, movement or uplifting of the studs from the mud sill, even with the anchoring. Because the anchoring is only into your mud sill, but, you know, no other um, things holding the, the wall studs in place. That's why I asked the question about the blocking, whether it would add any value to it at all. Oh. And you say no. No. I mean, it's, it's, if you don't put it in, then your system doesn't work. Your studs are That's already connected to your mud sill anyway. Yeah. You know, they're already nailed to the mud sill before you start, hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. How about somebody in the back? Any questions? No. What time is it? It's just up there about 11:15. We're just at the end. All right. I guess that's it then. Thank you very much for thank you for coming Thanks and so much, everyone. check your schedules for what's coming up next. Thank you.